And welcome to the Philosophia Perennis de Omine live classroom and chat room here tonight on the Crusade channel. We are only able to deliver the broadcast stream tonight on the free preview. It is high quality, but uh, if you didn't know that, you wouldn't go looking for it. So we are recording tonight, and that's about all that we can do, uh, given the current circumstances. So um, we're studying Domine, lecture number two, and we'll pick up where we left off last night, or last week, with uh, Brother Andre Marie and... Um, Domine lecture number one, and I'm sure brother will put some notes into the chat room. If you want to join the in the off chance that you've picked up on the fact that we are on the preview channel stream and uh, you are listening live, then you can blouse on over to MikeChurch.com at the top of the page. Uh, you should see the Domine under the Catholicism link. You'll see Philosophia Perennis, and if you go there, then you can go check into the, uh, the page, scroll down the page, and you can see the live classroom and chat room is displayed up there for you. And you, you can click in there and you can log in as a guest or using your Twitter or your Facebook username and password. Or, or if you have a Rumble Talk username and password, which you can get for free, then you can start there. So uh, without further ado, I will turn the class... Over to uh, Brother Andre Marie, the St. Benedict Center from Richmond, New Hampshire. And Brother will guide us through the lecture on uh, a number, on Domine number two. And if you have any questions, you can always just pop them into the chat room, into the text box there. Uh, brother? Hey, Brother. Just here, but we'll make the best of it, eh? <laughs> There's no making uh. the <laughs> I, I don't even want to discuss it because it would not be conducive to the class. So uh, uh, I, <laughs> well, I, I'm just going to do this uh, well, for the next 15 minutes. We'll have to acquire minutes. some good habits so as to get around this. Um, in fact, that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, Brother Francis begins a discussion of habits. He does not go into depth on habits tonight, but he introduces the concept. And he quotes St. Thomas Aquinas quoting Aristotle right. about habits. And he quotes um, St. Thomas saying, by habits we are directed well or ill in reference to the passions. So you remember last time in the first lecture, we would, uh, Brother was talking about the, the, uh, the passions. He introduced the um, concupiscible and irascible passions. Right. And he enumerated them. And he, and he talked about um, most of them, but he did not get um, into detail on the irascibles, which we're going to cover tonight, because um, he, he gets to that in lecture two. Um, but it's important to know, you know, just to, a, a reminder concerning the passions, that the, the passions are ontologically good, meaning that they are something that's part of man's makeup and man was made good man was made uh properly by god he was he was made right and uh so the adam and eve before the fall had the passions i mean uh so everybody that's ever lived good and bad people have all had the passions um the the difference is what kind of habits do we acquire that help us to um, direct our passions either to, to good or evil. So that's what Aristotle said in St. Thomas Coatsen, by habits we are directed well or ill in reference to the passions. So a habit 
is a quality of soul um, that it, if you if you remember those of you who with the with us for the philosophia perennis remember the, that there were ten categories that Aristotle gave. He gave the one category of substance and nine categories of accident, one of which was a quality, quality, quality. So we have a quality of soul, which is called a habit, and we can have good habits or we can have bad habits. And the, and the, the word, as it's used philosophically, in this instance corresponds pretty much exactly to the way that the word is used in the common parlance, you know, so if somebody says smoking is a bad habit or, you know, drunkenness is a bad habit or whatever, that exactly fits the concept of it philosophically. And of course, good habits we call virtues and bad habits we call vices. Now, there are other kinds of habits. There are entitative habits and operative habits, and technically what we're talking about here in virtues and vices are, would be considered operative habits, but we don't need to go into that level of detail, not, certainly not at this point. But the, but So just in general, we define a vice as a good habit, and we define a virtue as, we define a vice as a bad habit, we define a, a virtue as a good habit, and a habit is a kind of quality of soul. Um, and habits are formed by repeated acts. And so therefore, some, supposing somebody has the virtue of prudence, he, he, get, he acquires the virtue of prudence by repeated acts of prudence. In other words, he, he thinks before he acts, he uses his memory to remember what happened last time when he did this action he's contemplating, and then he decides not to do it because it wasn't a good thing when it happened last time. Um, the more somebody acts with that kind of circumspection and forethought and planning and so forth, the more does he acquire the virtue of prudence. Uh, by, um, by contrast, somebody who just rushes pell-mell into the kind of um, whatever it is he wants to do, uh, without much forethought and planning, he doesn't. He doesn't think about what happened the last time he did this stupid thing and something bad happened. That person um, has the the vice of imprudence, and he can properly be called imprudent. And we can say the same thing about every virtue and vice. So, uh, somebody who who eats and drinks moderately without abusing um, his bodily appetite for food and drink, he could be said to be temperate. Um, somebody who's a glutton and a drunkard can be properly said to be intemperate. Intemperate. One is the virtue, one is the vice, and it's the habits that direct us well or ill in reference to these passions. Because in every instance where you're looking at a virtue, we're talking about the moral virtues here, not what we would call the theological virtues in, in theology. But when we're talking about the the the, the natural virtues that we that we live by every day, or the, or the vices that are their opposites, because virtues and vices stand in, in in pairs as opposites. When we talk about those, we're talking about something that's that's um, uh, always in reference to the passions. You name the virtue, I'll name the passion. That's just the way that it works. So. Um, um, you know, when you talk about, I mean, actually, there could be a number of passions involved. So, for instance, when you talk about temperance, um, 
the concupiscible passions would all um, come to the fore, you know. When you talk about uh, prudence, it could be practically any passion because prudence is going to is going to direct our activities across all of the virtues and all the all of the passions. So, um, you know, uh, the habit of chastity, the virtue of chastity, is something that 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 directs us in a very specific consideration concerning um, the the concupiscible passions. So the habit of the, 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 the virtue of meekness specifically opposes the, the, um, the vice of anger, and therefore it, re it regulates and directs the passion of anger. Remember, there, there's, there's some overlap, overlapping terms here, and we don't want to confuse the, the anger, the vice, with anger, the passion, or hope, the, the, the passion, uh, with hope, the the theological virtue, which are different, they're related, but they're different. They're conceptually related, but they're different things. Um, so that's that, um, oh, brother. Um, my lecture number two started with the Psalms. Did I listen? Yeah, to and I figured that because this is a course in De Homine, we we wouldn't dwell on what brother said about the song. Okay. I, I just want to make sure like bonus. Thing All right. I just, I just wanted to make sure but, that I listened to the right one. Yeah. He, he brother, I had forgotten this. And we talked about doing the homine that, that he was also introducing people to praying the Psalms and reading, reading the Psalms. So, um, I wasn't going to dwell on those things. Um, so I just figured I, I, I directly hit the, um, the, the subjects of the homine. That he covers. Yeah, sounds good. This is the uh, Domine class, classroom and chat room live here on the Crusade channel. King Size Truth from Radio Speakers, and we're doing Domine lecture number two. And Brother Andre Marie from the St. Benedict Center is with us and is instructing us. If you'd like to join the, uh, the chat room, it is on the site at mikechurch.com under the tab Catholicism and then Philosophia Perennis if it's not scrolling across the top of the page with a uh, graphic image. And then you scroll a little ways down the page and you'll see the chat room. I'd open it up in a new window so you can have it free and clear of any other browser windows you have open. And then you can log in as a guest or using Twitter or on the Facebook. And as soon as this uh, episode is concluded, uh, sometime tomorrow, we will update the RSS podcast feed. Which, uh, again, I just don't have the time to offer any technological instruction on this, uh, on, the, on, on the podcast feed, but it's pretty self-explanatory, and you can Google uh, search uh, uh, for apps on how to use it. But it will be updated, and when we update them, then you'll see that multiple episodes will start to appear in iTunes or whatever uh, player that, you, uh, that you're using. You should see two episodes in there right now, lecture number one, and then class and chat room, uh, Domine. Uh, or, or Domine Classroom and Chat Room uh, Lecture Number One, and of course tomorrow will be Number Two. Okay, so uh, brother, so we're picking up here on uh, Lecture Number Two and uh, uh, learning all about the habits, good and bad. Um, is yep. there, and, and did you throw anything up in the in the chat room for for folks to download tonight or their notes? I, I did. I, so I, I threw up. Um, oh, I see him. I see him. Okay. Look. Well, I'm going to give two. I'll, I'll, I'll um, put back into the window two things um, that are necessary. Um, 
the Dropbox link. Okay, the the other the other thing didn't come through right. Mm. Um, the Dropbox link. I, I put in the Dropbox link to the folder that has uh, all the notes. Now, right now, it's only got lectures one and two. Uh, and then also, I'll put in again the link to the powers of human nature because I'm I'm, I'm soon to make a reference to that about the powers of human nature. Um, the uh, let, let's let me make a couple of points about the, about habits. We acquire habits by repeated acts. Okay? okay, so one act of intemperance doesn't make the habit of intemperance. One act of prudence does not make for the virtue of prudence. There have to be a series of of repeated acts, and it's by that that we acquire the virtue. Okay. We can, we can consider other operative habits that don't enter into the moral sphere um, in the area of, say, the arts. So somebody, if somebody's a painter and he lear- learns a certain technique of painting, he has to practice that technique. He's going to have a teacher giving him exercises and giving him sketches and things to copy and imitate and emulate. And he's going to have to do that over and over and over to master that technique, right? Right. And the same thing is said of, of every, every art and every art craft, because all of the arts are about acquiring habits, because it, acquiring skills that can be done with, with uh, facility and, and a high degree of excellence. That's what the arts are about. They're all, they're all perfectible. And as much as we can acquire a higher degree of the habits that accompany them. Same thing for somebody who wants to play the, the violin, you know, somebody like Hilary Hahn, you know, great world-class classical violinist. This, this woman practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced, you know, so it's like the old joke, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. So that's how those habits are acquired. The same is true of moral habits, which we call virtues. Now, uh, you know, they, they say that you, you don't have to, um, you don't have to do a lot of work to get weeds in your garden. They just happen. So you don't have to work hard to acquire vices, but in point of fact, you are going to be doing repeated acts in order to acquire vices. Okay. So whether it's repeated acts of gluttony or intemp- other acts of intemperance or impurity or, um, uh, you know, bad habits concerning your, your neighbor, uncharitable things, uh, un- unkindness, uh, imprudence. You know, think of any of the any of the cardinal virtues, uh, acts of injustice, ripping people off, stealing, cheating, lying. Those are all sins against justice. Those are all violations of the of the virtue of justice. So they're injustices. So people acquire those kinds of habits too. Not necessarily by working at it, but simply by falling into the bad habit and and repeatedly doing something wrong, and they acquire the habit. Now, it's it's sort of a rule of human psychology that to overcome the the bad habit, we have to do uh, uh, many repeated acts of the opposite virtue. So this is uh, this is a practical consideration for you know learning to live well you know so if you if you're constantly tempted to this that or the other vice and you fall into it regularly the way to get out of it is not to simply quote quit the vice you can't do that you have to do acts 
of the virtue that oppose that vice, and you have to do them with energy and repetition in order to offset the, in order to basically uproot the bad habit and put in its place the good habit. This is simply how men are made. This is this is how how we're composed. This is what this is how we get rid of good get rid of bad habits and implant good habits. So all of the habits have some relation to the passions. Uh, you know, if you if you were to throw out a passion and have me uh, you know talk about how how it enters into the moral life of vice and virtue each passion could be considered distinctly so the concupiscible passion of uh, desire obviously leads us to to uh, want all sorts of things you know bodily goods uh, even goods of the soul um, gratification friendship all sorts of things that are pleasing to us, and it, it, it leads us to, to find our joy in those things, the, the passion of joy or delight, once we achieve them. Now, now uh, marketing today, marketing has always been about appealing to human passions. I mean, you're not going to find me an ad someplace and and um, there will be a passion that we can associate with it, right? Every single uh, ad for anything from clothing to perfume to you know a new a new workout routine or something. If you're over forty or whatever, the disgusting ads on YouTube for men over forty, you know how to how to get you know killer abs and all this nonsense. All of these things appeal to the passions, and most of them to the lowest passions, frankly. Um, and the, the 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 of course, in every instance, there are going to be the virtues that are going to direct those passions properly, and the vices that um, that are going to happen in the soul as bad habits of the soul when those passions are simply allowed to flourish unchecked. Okay, I hope I hope that's all clear. No, I don't think anybody's throwing in a. Um, I don't think anybody's throwing a uh, any questions up in the chat room. Um, oh wait, actually, Jason says, "Is it accurate to say then that repeated bad moral habits result in vices?" Uh, actually, it's more that that is accurate, but it's more accurate to say that repeated bad moral habits are vices, <laughs> because a bad moral habit is a vice. That's that's how you would define it. Okay. So, or, or you'd or, um, or you'd define it as a way of life for the average American, right? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, and of course, you know, we're we're, we're talking about natural philosophy here, but right. we, we don't shy away from introducing theological concepts into it. I mean, we we know that with original sin, um, the 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 original integrity that existed in Adam and Eve uh, was thrown off. And there was an imbalance there. And whereas Adam and Eve were perfectly obedient to God initially, uh, and therefore in themselves there was a perfect obedience of the lower powers to the intellect and to the will. After the fall happened, there was a loss of that integrity, and therefore the body had its own motions that were independent of and rebellious to the, to the good that was known to the will. And the passions wanted to do their things. And, you know, the intellect knows what's good, 
and the will desires the higher good, but the passions are saying, you know, no, I want to eat that, you know, fourth Twinkie, uh, even though in your intellect, you know, you don't need it. And your, your, your will really desires not to enchain yourself to that sort of gluttony. But there, that's, the, that's the division that exists in man between his lower powers and his highest powers of, of reason. And th this is this is what uh, I mean. Human, Brother Francis said, "Human history is a history of the passions." You you look at you look at human history. You see these wars, you know, violence, people being uh, letting their avarice rule the day, and um, you have these uh, these these terrible events in, in human history. But then you have the good people, the heroes. These are the people who's who by living a life of virtue overcome their base passions and who every once in a while score some historical <laughs> historical victory um okay this is the crusade yeah, uh, channel so and Smathers is saying something about marketing good good rhetoric includes considering the person you're attending to convince uh, uh with their passions being what influences them yeah and since people are so easily steered by their passions marketing uh it, it, you know appealing to the passions and also appealing to people's vice, um, uh, you know, not, and it's not just um, the the concupiscible vices, especially impurity, but it's also things like uh, pride. I mean, how many ads appeal to, to human pride? How much marketing is based on pride? You deserve this. You deserve you deserve the very best. All right? of I them. mean, this is a line that I can think of from an ad I saw when I was a kid. See, so all of these things are making appeals to to human vice and to the base passions. Well, brother, I think uh, think that now, uh, almost all of them appeal to to the the, uh, the pride, uh, especially the ones that want you to consume something. Um, and this is the Dominic Classroom here on the Crusade Channel, uh, part on the part of the Veritas Radio Network. And I was just uh, thinking, as Brother Andre Marie of the Saint Benedict Center was talking that we will get a preview of and a sneak peek at what is on tonight's Reconquest episode. Brother, you're at ep ep episode number 59? No, uh, actually, I'm up to, um, <clears throat> I think it's 63 tonight. You know, last time I asked, I thought you told me 58, and now... <laughs> All right, so episode number 63, like I said... 63, 59, same thing. <laughs> 63 is the new 59. Yeah, that's right. So wh what is on uh, 63? Okay, so it is episode 63, and it's called Education as if Truth Mattered. <laughs> and it um, doesn't. Which uh, is a play on the name of, um, of, of, the, of the book um, on economics that was written years ago, uh, and the author's name just escaped me. But... Um, it was called um, uh, Economics as if People Mattered. Um, is that uh, Henry I, Hazlitt? No, I, I, I'm just, uh, I'll, I'll sound like an idiot if I keep trying to remember okay, the name. Okay, all right, it's all right. not coming to me. Please continue. Um, but he was, he, was a, he was a convert to Catholicism. He'd actually dabbled in Buddhism and so forth. But he, but he, he taught some interesting economic theories. And when he was... Um, uh, when he was asked by a friend, hey, did, did, did you know that you sound like the popes in their social encyclicals? He thought that was nuts until he started reading the social encyclicals, and then he, <laughs> and then he converted to Catholicism. Um, but anyway, the, 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 the show is on um, 
giving sound principles concerning education. This time, it's sort of continuing what I talked about with Dr. Fahey when we talked about the liberal arts, only the liberal arts, um, we were talking about college education or university education. Here I'm talking about um, lower, lower grades. I'm talking about like specifically, you know, kindergarten to like sixth grade. Um, and I had a few, a couple of the teachers in our school with me, so it'll be fun. Yeah, E.F. Schumacher, um, Jennifer, go. God bless you, Jennifer. Thank you. Um, Small is beautiful, and the subtitle of Small is beautiful is Economics is if people mattered. That's I like exactly that. right. Okay, um, so uh, brother, before you continue, I was just going to add to what you were saying about the passions informing uh, virtues. That Professor Alan Bloom wrote a book back in the '80s. A lot of people probably have a copy of it. It's called The Closing of the American Mind. And <clears throat> Bloom was an atheist. I'm pretty sure he was Jewish. He was a Jewish atheist. And he almost arrived at this same, um, uh, now that I recall, he almost arrived at this uh, same methodology as Brother and St. Thomas uh, did uh, from a decidedly different point of view because he had an entire chapter on the virtues and what passion informed what virtue. Um, it's been like 10 years, maybe 12 years since I've read it. But I do remember that, that that chapter and that he included that in there. Um, so if Bloom could come to the same conclusion, being a, uh, I believe he was a homosexual as well. <laughs> so if, if Alan Bloom could intellectually come to the same conclusion as St. Thomas Aquinas, Aristotle, and Brother Francis, I think this is pretty sound thinking. Yo, I think I think Bloom was something of an Aristotelian. I don't know much about I him. He, I mean, I know he wrote some very good stuff about education and some other things. Um, well, but, one of his signal literary achievements, brother, is he took the original Greek, or however we got the Greek of Plato's Republic, and wrote an introduction to it, and then retranslated it, and then wrote an introduction to every chapter. So I think he might, uh, I, I, I think he dabbled in Plato, but I, I think, in, 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 as I recall in reading the book, that he was an Aristotelian, but he was also Platonist, or at least he studied Plato. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, uh, um, obviously he's a very, very, very well intellectually formed man. Um, Dan asked a question in the chat room. Um, Brother Francis mentioned materialism, hedonism, and one more. Can you expound if they are different or all effectively the same? So uh, I was going to get to that in the notes, but since the question was asked, I, I don't mind skipping up to it. Brother said, um, so, so brother's talking about the, the hierarchy. So I'll answer you, Dan, and I'll answer you specifically in, in the context of what it, the point that I wanted to make soon, which was that remember those um, remember those passions that we uh, not the passions, excuse me. Remember the the list of man's powers that we put up on the um, on the. Let's see. We, we put a PDF, the powers of human nature. Now, um, if you're listening to this either on recording or live and you don't know what I'm talking about, email me at bam at catholicism.org and I can send you a link to where you can see this document, which I've put up the link to in the chat room. But um, those 24, those 26 powers of human nature, 24 of which we have in common with brute animals and three of which we have in common with uh, plant life, those powers or faculties of human nature are very hierarchical. And this is important to, to, 
appreciate looking at the chart helps, especially if you're what people call a visual learner. Um, when I have somebody describing to me a picture, I can't follow. I have to see it. Uh, so I guess I'm a, quote, visual learner. But if you look at that chart, you'll see at the top that on the left, you've got the cognitive faculty of the intellect, and on the right, you've got the appetitive faculty of the will. Those are the highest powers in man, the intellect and the will. This is what puts us in the, in the image and likeness of God. This is what we have in common with the angels, uh, which is why that, that in the material order, man is at the absolute apex of creation in the material order. Angels are higher than us, but, uh, but they're, they're not material. They, they, are, they are pure spirits. So if you look at that and see those two different powers, the cognitive power of the intellect and the appetitive power of the will, you will see that all of the other powers are beneath them. So uh, the, the, the external senses, the inner senses on the cognitive side, and then on the appetitive side, the concupiscible and irascible passions, all of these things are lower than our, our uh, intellect and our will. And, and we have to realize it. St. Thomas is the philosopher of order. This must be appreciated. If you read anything, especially if you read something right out of St. Thomas himself, but if you read the book by Father Glenn that I that I that Brother Francis has been using, um, you will see that there's a tremendous structure and order and uh, hierarchy in St. Thomas's universe and his view of the universe. Or, or what I should say is this. God built a hierarchy into the universe, and St. Thomas, with his highly ordered and differentiated mind, very, very lucidly articulates that order. And that's what, we, that's what we're here to appreciate, how that order is found in man. Now, when you look at that chart and you see the, the, uh, the hierarchy of it, you realize that the intellect and the will are above all those things in the sense that they... Not, not only ontologically are they higher because they make us better than the brute animals, but they are in us they are higher because it is it is by them that the passions should be regulated. So St. Thomas will say that all of our passions, our bodily activities as, as well, have to be regulated according to reason. And in fact, St. Thomas will actually define sin as... Um, uh, I mean, it's not the definition of sin, but it's, it's frequently he will bring up sin as doing something that is, quote, contrary to reason, because reason teaches us what is the proper use of a thing. And if we violate that use, then we then we oftentimes fall into some moral problem. And that's that would be sin. So. St. Thomas has a tremendous value for reason, and some people would look at St. Thomas and say, this guy's a rationalist. He's constantly talking about this is contrary to reason or that's in accordance with reason. No, he's not a rationalist, but for St. Thomas, the reason is the highest power that's built into man by nature, and there, but it still needs to be elevated by grace. And, um, and therefore, in grace, it's the power of reason that's led by faith that helps us to, to make the right decisions as to, to things that are right and wrong. But um, getting back now to that hierarchy that exists, um, the will needs to command at times the passions to shut up, right? <laughs> the will needs to command us to do things contrary to, our to the desires of our passions. Now, 
Brother Francis, getting back to Dan's question, he, he, he said, you know, effectively, he remembers Brother Francis talking about um, materialism and hedonism. And it, was there something else on that list? And what's the relation and so forth? Brother Francis made this statement. When a man becomes a censist in epistemology, automatically he is a materialist in his ontology and his moral philosophy is hedonism. Now, let me break that down in terms of those uh, of that hierarchy of powers that we have. Um, a censist is what? A censist is somebody who, who believes that all knowledge comes through the senses, period. He discounts the use of reason. He would discount the use of philosophical proofs of things that are super sensual. In other words, things that are above the senses. So, for instance, we can reason to all sorts of principles and all sorts of axioms and so forth that aren't things that we see with our eyes. But from the things that we see and hear and smell and taste and touch and all that stuff, from those things, we can reason to other things that are not sensible. For instance, we can reason to, to laws of physics. You can't see a law of physics. <laughs> it's not visible. But the, the things that are governed by those laws are visible. So the sensist in epistemology, meaning, meaning the theory of knowledge, the philosophy that studies knowledge and how it is we know, the census would deny that, that anything above sense knowledge is real knowledge. So typically your sort of your atheist scientist tends to be a census. Um, that person is going to be a materialist in his ontology, because when it comes to the study and to the consideration of being, he's only going to consider matter, because epistemology and ontology are closely related. So his, he's going to, the one error of sensism is going to lead him to the, to the further and even worse area, error of materialism when he gets to ontology. And he won't believe in the existence of, of spirits, of angels, even the human soul. So you have scientists telling us, well, this guy died. Well, what's death? They can't define death and they can't define life because they don't believe in the existence of the human soul. Uh, because, because really, while you can see the effects of death and you can see the effects of life, if you discount the existence of the human soul, that you, you can't really define what life and death are. And brother, um, brother, doesn't that help explain as well? I mean, uh, all of the errors and thoughts that are uh, the, the product of bad philosophy— um, doesn't that help us uh, help understand and see why uh, all this uh, all this bad thought is around us? That it all begins from the same point, which is that, and I, I've talked about this on my show. Uh, in popular culture and in popular entertainment, uh, w if it's a movie, a television show, a video game, a play, a book, it really doesn't matter. Um, uh, we are surrounded by and regaled by the images or the imagery of people dying all the time. And uh, before, during, and after the death, I challenge you to find anyone that laments the passing of the soul or anyone that even admits that there's a soul. So it's taken such root, brother, that uh, it's one of those things, it's almost, uh, 
it's almost part of the uh, 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 of the method of thinking, or it's almost one of the cogs of modern thinking that if there is a soul, there's really nothing to see about it. Okay, well, there may be, but don't worry about it. And uh, I think that that's the, that that's the fundamental flaw that uh, every parent that has a kid that has to raise them in his culture has to deal with and has to try and find a way to overcome. And in, uh, in listening to the, uh, just the, the second to Omni lecture and listening to, to brothers so passionately talk about uh, the phantasms and uh, how, uh, how they work and uh, how they inform us and uh, about the soul of plants. And he even said that most people will snicker if you said that, uh, that a plant has a soul. But when we understand it in a context, uh, in a philosophical context, uh, it begins to make perfect sense. As a matter of fact, it, it, ma- it, it doesn't make sense that there wouldn't be a soul. Yeah, and I mean, we're going to get to the definition of the soul soon. I mean, Brother talks about, as you said, in this lecture, but the soul is the principle of life in a living, in, in a living material being. It's right. the principle of life in a material being. So any material being that's that's animate, and that would include not only animals, but also plants, um, has a soul. Right. Uh, so there's a vegetative soul, there's an animal soul, and there's a, the rational soul of, of the human being. And um, only our soul is rational. The other ones we, call, we would call brute souls or simply animal souls or, or, or vegetative souls in the case of plant life. But... It's strictly speaking just the principle of life in that thing. It's not so esoteric, esoteric as modern man wants to make it out to be. Um, it, it's the bre- it, you might say it's the breath of life that's in each one of us, and of course you can you can see it by its effects. But if you're merely a sensist, you're 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 not going to you're not you, you can't weigh it, you can't you know smell it, you can't uh, quantify it in any way. But you see its activities, and you certainly see when it's not there. You know, you can you can sense its activities, and you can sense its absence. But the sensist uh, doesn't believe in the concept of the soul because it's too closely related to the concept of religion and the immortal soul that's talked of in in in, uh, in Christianity and even in other religions. Well, so that's right. It, it gets to them. It gets uncomfortably close to believe in God and things like that. That's right. But. Uh, but the last thing that Brother Francis says is that person who's a census in his epistemology and therefore a materialist in his ontology, his approach to being, he's going to be a hedonist in his morals. Hmm. His, his ethical philosophy is going to be hedonism. Why? Because if you're a census, then everything is just about the senses, and uh, matter is all that counts. Uh, in fact, matter is all that is. Then it's just a matter of pleasure and pain. That's it. So what 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 pleases the body or or, or the the passions is good, and what what causes pain to the body or, or to the passions of the soul, uh, that's bad. And indeed, that's how many people live their day to day existence is is just you know basically being uh, it's a harsh way to put it, but slaves to their passions, and uh, you know ever in pursuit of of, of a greater degree of uh, bodily delight or something like that. Now, this can be very refined. I mean, you know, you, you find people who are very educated, erudite, esthetes, 
you know, whose pleasure might be in the ballet or in, you know, in, in good music or something like that. But they're, they're still hedonists because that's all they're living for is that pleasure. And they're not living for um, they're not living for something higher. And you won't find a high degree of altruism in such a person. Right. And you're still not going to find anything like holiness. Now, um, I, I had a couple of questions uh, flung at me in the chat room. Um, okay, so uh, Dan uh, Dan asks, um, to, and to contrast senses, how would we be described? How how would we be described in our epistemology? Okay, so. Well, our, our epistemology is going to be the epistemology of, of Philosophia Perennis, mm-hmm. and it's going to be rational as well as as well. As, so reason sitting above and somebody also asked, is reason both the intellect and the will or is it just the intellect? When we talk about the specific faculty of reason, we're talking about the intellect. But the will is called is defined as the appetite of the intellect so it, it's it's reasonable okay so it's based upon reason but reason as a distinct faculty is is um synonymous with the intellect so um back to dan's question about uh, what would our what would our um epistemology be it would be an epistemology that that has uh, reason as its guide, so it 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 is it is uh, you might say super sensual, and that doesn't mean exceedingly sensual. <laughs> that means it's a goes above the senses. So uh, it, it 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 takes into account uh, man's spiritual powers and the fact that there are things that exist that are above uh, sense knowledge. Super being. Okay, so go ahead, brother. Uh, Jason asks, "How does a materialist, um, how does a materialist, when confronted by the effects of life and death, not consider the spiritual aspect? Yet they have no opposition to full acceptation of scientific principles. I, I would say that they're inconsistent because some because scientific principles, um, there are there are principles of scientific inquiry." that are not things that you can see with the senses. For instance, the principle of non-contradiction is not something that you can see with your senses. It's not something you can quantify, you cannot observe in a laboratory. But if a scientist did not believe in the principle of non-contradiction, which simply says something cannot be and not be in the same sense, um, you know, two plus two cannot equal four and it cannot not equal four. It cannot, it cannot equal four and not equal four at the same time. Right. Um, that that sim- principle of non-contradiction is very simple. Well, they would accept that because they have to, because nothing that they would do would make any shred of sense if they didn't accept it. Yet they can't prove it. And one of the canons of census approach to epistemology, and all the, in the when you see this in the empirical sciences, but one of their canons is if you cannot prove it. If you cannot sense it, if you cannot weigh it, smell it, you know, see it, quantify it in some way, it doesn't exist. <laughs> now, not every scientist holds that, obviously. Louis Pasteur didn't hold that, and, and many great scientists even today wouldn't hold that. But your, your typical sort of atheist, uh, agnostic kind of uh, censist is going to hold that. And there, there is a disconnect. There is a fundamental uh, contradiction there because so many, and, and I just gave the example of the principle of non-contradiction. There are numerous other principles 
that um, that the science that the sciences presume one of which is the reliability of our senses. And if you know, if you're familiar with some of the modern philosophers that we looked at when we went through the Philosophia Perennis course, you would have seen that so many of these guys denied the, the capacity of the human intellect to know truth. Well, if you now can you prove the capacity of the human intellect to know truth in a laboratory? Absolutely not. No, you can't prove it. It has to be taken for granted. And scientists have to take it for granted. Otherwise, their observations mean nothing. <laughs> because if you can't observe, then your observations are useless. So I would say that there is an, an inherent contradiction there, Jason. Brother, we have about uh, eight minutes left. And uh, I just wanted to, to throw in, and uh, this isn't really a, a question, but when we were kids in high school and we started taking introductory physical science or maybe even got into a little higher stage in physics, we used to, on the blackboard, the teacher would draw a model of what an atom looked like. And, you know, you'd have the nucleus and you'd have uh, the appropriate amount of protons and the appropriate amount of neutrons circling it, right? Um, no one has ever seen an atom, though. But, no, it's a model. Right. It's a, mo it's but, a model that they came up with. Yes, but it is taken for granted and, uh, and as an act of faith. Well, no, that's what it will look like. It looks just like that. Um, well, and, and as you know, these advanced physicists, have all of these models for uh, ten parallel dimensions and all this kinds of stuff? <laughs> uh, none of that's been observed. It's 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 all it's all con constructions that work on paper mathematically, but it, it doesn't mean it's reality. But if they were, but if you were to ask them, okay, well, what keeps the why do the little ones orbit around the, the nucleus in the middle? They said, well, it's the principle of gravity in an atom. We would answer because God made it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's a, there's a there's a fundamental irrationality behind some right. of their unstated fundamental presuppositions. So let's see if we can move a little bit along in the notes because I'd like to I'd like us to get into those concupiscible passions. Um, so again, let, 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 I'm going to skip a chunk of brother's notes by simply reasserting: look at that chart and realize that on that chart. On both the on both the cognitive side and the appetitive side, there uh, there is a hierarchy, and that above the appetitive powers of the passions you have the will, and above the cognitive powers of the external senses and the internal senses you have the intellect, and it's very important to 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 look at that hierarchy and to realize if this is hierarchical, then the intellect and the will are up there knowing what's more important than what the senses can know and desiring what is the true good that our mere passions, which is like our bodily appetites, um, cannot, cannot desire. Okay. So therefore the lower faculties have to be regulated by the higher. That's part of the whole concept of the hierarchy here. Um, Okay, so now you brought up phantasms, I think, Mike. I did. Um, a phantasm is a material thing. What is a phantasm? It's something in our mind by, by, uh, that it's stored, it's, it's sensed by the imagination. And, okay, well, let me, let me uh, make it orderly here. Our external senses sense something. Uh, I see a tree, I see a dog, I see a cat, I see something. And that, an image from that external sense 
comes into my internal senses, which are localized in my brain. They are organic faculties, organic powers of the brain. So I have images of dogs. I have images of all kinds of things. Everything I've seen today, everything I've heard, smelled, touched, tasted, those are stored in my brain. And that's why when I walk into the room and I smell something that smells like you know, bacon, for instance, mm-hmm. I identify it as bacon. Why? Because my sense memory has a stored phantasm of, of the smell of bacon. I have a so- stored phantasm of the sound of a tree falling. I have a stored phantasm of the, of the, of the sight of an eagle flying. I mean, these are phantasms. It's a sense impression that's on my brain. And uh, this is something which is completely in the material order. The organ for knowing it is material, the brain, the object itself is material. The, all of the things that are described that have left this phantasm uh, are, are material things. And um, the medium is also material. So of sight, of touch, of what, or whatever. It's purely material. And it's, it's important for us to situate phantasms here because these are the, th- these are the things that are going to be um, uh, in the inner senses, stored in our sense memory. And from there, we do something that the mere animals cannot do. And what is that? We have the power to abstract. And what does that mean? Well, I know Brother's going to get more into the, to the, to the um, process of abstraction later, but in short order, I can say this, that, we, that the process of abstraction is going from that image that's stored in our brain, in our sense memory, that our imagination uh, cultivated and then stored in the sense memory, that image is going to be, as it were, handed over to the intellect, and the intellect can give it a name, and the intellect can reason about it, and the intellect can speak about it with intelligence. That's something that animals can't do. Animals have very good senses, in many instances far superior to our own, and they have brains, and they have imaginations, and they have a sense memory. This is how, when when you call your dog's name and he knows it, it's because he has a sense memory. He has that cognitive faculty. But he's not going to be able to sit there and abstract about dog nature. You know, the dog's not going to sit there and say, what does it really mean to be a dog? Okay, that kind of abstract thought can only happen in an intellect. Okay, so um, I'm trying to, okay, let, let me get to the irascible passions real quick. Okay, Mike? Yeah, no, no, to take your time, I was going to say, you said dog nature, and I almost heard you say dog nato, which would be a... Dog nato. Ter- oh, no, no, dog <laughs> nature. And I, I'm always favoring the dogs, because when I'm talking, <laughs> you usually have the dog, the monastery dog right next to me, and here he is curled up on the carpet right next to me. Well, well dog nato would be a terrible sequel, or would be a sequel to a terrible series of campy films called Sharknado. <laughs> oh, okay, well, thankfully, I'm, I'm ignorant of that, Mike. Uh, <laughs> Yes, you are very fortunate that you have not uh, been exposed to Sharknado 1 through 4. Okay, certain <laughs> certain things are it's good to be ignorant of. Yes. Um, so in the passions, we have daring and fear. In the irascible passions, we have daring and fear, hope and despair, and anger. These are the passions of difficulty. Remember, the concupiscible passions are directed to the good, simply speaking. You might say the easy good. Um Irascible passions are the fighting passions. These are the passions of difficulty. So um, we have hope is the tendency towards a good that's apprehended as difficult. 
but not impossible to achieve. So you have a hope for something if it's difficult to achieve. Gee, I, I hope I, you know, make it onto the all-star football team. I hope I win the race. I hope I, you know, get that A grade in Professor, you know, McNamara's very difficult uh, class. These are all things that we can legitimately say, I hope. There's a difficult good and there's a chance of getting it. Okay, but when hope gives up, as it were, when hope dies and the difficult good does not look like it's achievable, we don't have hope anymore. We have despair. Now, Brother Francis points out that St. Thomas makes some distinctions that hope as it's becoming despair, but it's still hope because you still want to get it. It's called desperation. And when you see those like Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom or any of these PBS documentaries on animal wildlife, you see these two animals going at each other and they're fighting for their lives. You know, you can see hope turn into desperation and you see it on the animals' faces when they're fighting for their lives. And then finally it falls into, in, into, into a form of despair when the, the animal realizes he's, he's the other animal's dinner. Um, despair is, is a falling back. It's a giving up in the face of a good that's apprehended as unachievable or an evil that's apprehended as unavoidable. So um, despair, again, it's a fighting passion. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a level of angst and, and combat there. Um, but it's, it's the opposite of hope because it's giving up in the face of, a, of, a, of an evil that's unavoidable or of a difficult good that's not achievable anymore. Um, now, Brother Francis points out that supernaturally, in the order of in the order of um, the virtues, despair is terrible. You know, spiritually, despair is terrible. We, when we despair of our salvation, that despairs of God's mercy. But on the other hand, prudence dictates that in certain other things, we have to despair. So even a hero can despair of achieving a certain goal. So he just quits that and he moves on to something else. We, 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 we should be despairing of certain things. Sometimes you have to despair that this tool is going to, you know, properly be the thing that's going to uh, un unfasten that bolt. OK, so th <laughs> there are legitimate, prudent places for despair. Sure. Um, now, daring, which is also called courage, is the tendency to, to wear down evils which block the attainment of desired goods. So daring is a passion that 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 puts us up to conquer a, a, a difficult evil or to achieve a difficult good. We call it also bravery. The reason Brother Francis prefers to call it daring, and he mentioned this in the lecture, is that courage tends to be the name of the virtue. And, and, and when we call it courage, it's too easily confused with the virtue. But we see daring in the, in, in the animal world. You know, look, look, if you want to know daring, look at, look at a mother of, of some animal uh, that's uh, defending its young. When she's defending her young, she'll go up against animals much bigger than herself because there's an instinct built into her that says to protect her young because that's how that, that um, breed is going to continue. That's how, that's how that, that animal is going to continue. So the opposite of daring is fear, also called timidity, which is the tendency to shrink back in agitation uh, when there's an obstructing evil that's apprehended as very difficult to overcome. So fear um, is, again, it's a good thing. All these passions are good. You know, fear isn't necessarily bad. 
we should have fear. I mean, soldiers, for instance, should have some degree of fear. That doesn't mean that they don't have courage. But if they lack all fear, they're going to be reckless. Brother, we have going to, you know, stand up when they should be sitting down because their bullets are whizzing by overhead. Brother, we have just about a minute to get to reconquest. Okay, so the last passion is anger, and anger has no partner. Why? Because it's the it's the tendency to violent action in order to fight off an evil that's present to us. When the evil is present to us and it's unavoidable. That's when we become angry. Um, when, when, the, when we successfully escape the evil, we don't become angry. We don't have an irrestible passion. Why? Because we have the concupiscible passion of joy at that point. When we've successfully fought off the difficult evil, instead of falling into anger, we fall into joy because, hey, we've avoided that, got out of that problem. And, brother, that's about all the time we have for this episode of De Omine, part of the Philosophia Penennis training course here. If you'd like to join us, so we'll be back next Wednesday night. Of course, you can get your own copy of the 31 lectures from Brother Andre and Marie. Just send an email to me, kingdude at mikechurch.com. We'll now join the next episode of the Reconquest with Brother Andre and Marie, and we'll see you next week here for the lecture number three of De Omine.